you see the Avengers, and I think uh, maybe some movie's coming out real soon about this, but when you see the Avengers, you think about justice. I mean, here are the heroes coming, and they're going to bring justice to the world. They're going to make things right. They're going to rescue the oppressed and, and, and really punish the oppressors. And if we were to be honest with ourselves tonight, I think all of us, or today, all of us would say at some point that life is kind of unfair. And we want God to come with all of his glory and his power to make things right. We think about the injustices of the world, the poor of the world. You know, God, when are you going to make that right? What about the one million Christians that have been martyred over the last hundred years all across the world because of their faith? What about the terrorist attacks that we're experiencing all across the world, including one in Manhattan just this past week? And then it gets more personal. God, I'm not treated right at work. Somebody else is getting promoted over me, or I see my neighbors, and they're, they're not going to church, and they're probably maybe in some unethical type of practice or questionable things, and yet they're making a lot of money, and then I'm struggling. When are you going to make things right? All of us would agree that we want justice in the world. The problem is, when is that going to really occur? Well, as we open up the Bible... I want to read Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 18 uh, before we go into our passage in Habakkuk this morning. It says, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy for you. The Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Notice the words, grace, mercy, justice. They kind of all go together along with waiting. And so as we look at that as a little bit of a background to our book study uh, this time, I'll be finishing up this series of messages next week with one most powerful, encouraging set of verses in all the Bible. In fact, someone wrote these verses to me years ago, slid them under my door right back here in my study, and I have those verses still on a card. And I read them periodically before I come out to preach. We'll be talking about that next week. But this week... We look at Habakkuk chapter 2, beginning with verse 5, running through the rest of the chapter. And as we look at this, we understand that we've said that the nation of Israel used to be one kingdom. But then Rehoboam came in, the grandson of David, split the kingdom, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. Northern kingdom was called Israel. Southern kingdom, which also had the city of Jerusalem, was called the kingdom of Judah. Now, about 100 years before Habakkuk was written, Assyria came along and conquered the northern kingdom. They never had a good king. They never really lived godly lives. God warned them and warned them and warned them down through the centuries. And finally, Assyria came in and took over. Now, Habakkuk was very, very disturbed because Judah was doing the same things that Assyria was doing 100 years before. And he was warning them that judgment was coming. Now, he was looking for a judgment of revival, a judgment just kind of inner inner judgment of the nation of Israel. And God says, look, Habakkuk, I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to send Babylon to come, the Chaldeans, to come and conquer Judah, and I'm going to set things right. And and Habakkuk, of course, is saying, hey, look, that's not what I had in mind. I don't understand, God, why in the world you would take a nation far worse than Israel, far worse than Judah, and punish evil people, very evil people, punishing the merely evil people. And God, he said, God, when is this all going to come about? 
When is the judgment then going to come to Babylon? They are beasts at heart. They, they reap where they have not sown. They go in with, with bloody um, instruments to kill people, to take over people with no mercy. When are you going to punish them? Well, we open up the scripture today, and we find three things that we need to keep in mind and learn from the book of Habakkuk on how to deal with justice, not only in the world, but really in our own personal lives. Those times that we feel like we have enemies, those times that we have been greatly offended, and the offense just keeps going on and on and on. Maybe it's, maybe it's someone that drug your son or daughter down into bad, bad living, and you think to yourself, well, it just continually happens. That person is long out of their life, but boy, it just keeps happening, and it's so hard to let it go. What about the justice there? Three things. What, God, what does God see? Three questions. What will God do? And finally, how can we trust? And as I open up this passage, I first of all want us to see what does God see? Verse, verse 4, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, he says, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. Now, I look at this, and I, I looked at uh, several other pastors, and I was looking for maybe some insight here on how to share this thing, or maybe, maybe they didn't share it at all. And I found very few pastors that would even address this. In fact, they'd skip over the verse. Well, that puts me in a great handicap because I don't skip over verses. Okay, I, I believe in preaching the whole counsel of God. And really, if I feel like I, I'm skipping a subject, what I'm really saying is either you're not ready for it or I'm saying that I care more about you coming and, and attending than I do about your life and, and to teach you something. And yet, keep in mind that all pastors have the same difficulty. And that is this. Once we make up our minds about something, it's very difficult to change it. Now, I'm not saying there's certain things in your life that you're very open-minded about, or you're open-minded about adding something to what you already believe. Seth Godin, in one of his books, has said that all of us uh, basically migrate and want to hear the things that we already believe. He says, for example, if you lean to the uh, left, to the left of you, politically, you're going to want to watch CNN. If you lean to the right, you watch Fox News. And that's probably true. We don't want to hear anything that's going to make us angry, something we don't believe in. So we migrate to the things that, that we really believe in already. And it makes it difficult for us. In fact, let me just say this. I was reading this past week where um, this doctor was saying in his experiment that after we're around somebody so long, we actually share brain waves with them. In other words, our brain waves become very similar. And I know a lot of you have said, Pastor, you seem like you were a lot more intelligent 24 years ago than you are today. Well, hey, you were the guys I've been hanging out with for the last 24 years, you know. I'm just saying. And so we look at this, and it says wine is a traitor. And the, the wine here is basically they're saying, hey, look, it's not going to deliver what you want them, what, what you want it to deliver. In other words, it's going to fool you. And so, wine is a traitor. It will not give you what is promised. Now, let me say this. So, let me just say this about alcohol. I know nothing, basically, James McDonald's right. There's nothing in the Bible, nothing in the Bible that says anything good about alcohol. 
But let me just share with you probably where he's come from and where I'm coming from. I don't drink. I don't drink alcohol at all. And one of the reasons probably is because that's how I was raised. There was no alcohol in my home at all. We didn't have wine at dinner. There's no beer in the refrigerator. Uh, there was no going out and things like that and, uh, to, to, to drink with my parents. And so because of that, you know, I have that leaning already. Now, some of you are not that way. You were raised in a home that did have wine at dinner. You had, you just look at things totally different. In fact, some of you are even surprised that the Bible even addresses this at all and why I would address it. But that's one of the reasons. The other thing is I am in the ministry and all of my encounters with alcohol and as it pertains to people in ministry is bad. Now, maybe you hang around in different circles than I do, but it, it's just always bad. You know, it's the alcoholism and, and the fact that we have, a, we have a CR ministry here, a Celebrate Recovery ministry here for alcoholism. We have uh, broken marriages. We have affairs that, are, that alcohol is involved in. There's abuse that, that I've uh, had to counsel with people about. Alcohol was involved. So everything really uh, that I see is, is bad. I mean, I've never heard anybody. I mean, let's face it. Think about it for just a moment, all right? Have a little fun with this. No one has ever come to me, and probably not you either, and said, look, our marriage was really, man, it was hurting so bad. We were going down the tubes. It was just all bad, going off a cliff, and we weren't getting along, and there was abuse involved, but then we started drinking. And man, everything was great after that. You know? I've never heard a guy come to me and say, look, my son... His grades were failing. It was awful. It was, it was just terrible. We weren't getting along. He was hanging out with the wrong people. But then I proposed a solution, and that is we go out to the bars every Friday night and tie one on. And after that, man, it was great. His grades went up. He came to Jesus, you know, all that. I've never heard, I've never heard that, okay? And so what I have experienced is, is really bad stuff. So let's talk because of an interest of time. And maybe this is unfair because I'm not preaching a whole sermon on it. And maybe that's for a, another time. But let's agree that drunkenness is a bad thing. It says in the uh, book of Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says this. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Wow, that clears things up, right? Man, what is that debauchery stuff? We don't know what that means. You know, I mean... What were you doing this past week? I guess I was debauching some. I don't know. I don't know. What, you know, sounds pretty bad. Really, what debauchery simply means is that you do something in excess that it controls you. All right. So it's talking about a drunkenness that begins to control you in some way, and that's how the Bible kind of defines it. And so Andy Stanley uh, had a series of messages back in about 2010 called Guardrails, and he's talking about how we need to set up guardrails in our life for something that could be far worse. For example, you know, drunkenness brings about horrible things in your, horrible things in your life. Teenage pregnancy, alcoholism. In fact, um, I was reading uh, in Fox News report, an article said 30% of the people in America reg have regularly abused alcohol at some time in their life. Now, there's people like me that don't drink at all, so you would figure then if you drink at all, it's 40 to 50%. And then Almost 10% are alcoholics, and most of them are living out life just like you. Only 5% are what they call, what we would call maybe in old, the old days, Skid Row. There are 1,000 deaths due to alcohol every year. 
50% of domestic violence is due to alcohol. 70% of all child abuse, according to James McDonald. Then there's affairs, rape victims. There's a lot of things. In fact, look in verse 15. He says, Woe to him who makes his neighbor drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drink in order to gaze on their nakedness. And this is really date rape. This is where uh, you get someone drunk so you can take advantage of them. They were doing that then. It's happening today as well. And so what he's saying is we need guardrails in our life. I remember when uh, Pam and I used to, in fact, the family used to often go up to Gatlinburg, Tennessee to have family vacations. And if you've ever been up in those mountains, um, there's a mountain that has a lot of different cabins on it. We had to rent kind of a bigger cabin because we had friends, you know, the kids. That's the only, really, once they become teenagers, am I right? That's the only way they'll go on vacation with you is you take a friend along, you know? So we'd take a friend along, and we would go up this mountain. And I would make the comment, um, wow, if you were to go, there's no guardrail there. If you were to go off this mountain right here, there'd be no return. I mean, it's straight down. And Pam would say, yeah, what they need here is a guardrail. We like to state the obvious. And so um, we, th- two or three days later, we'd be going up the same mountain, and uh, she would say, wow, you know, now that it's dark, boy, if you were to go off there, there's no way you could survive that. I said, yeah, what they need is a guardrail. We just keep repeating that over and over again for years. You need a guardrail. It, w- it was obvious, but it, w- it, was, it was like frightening almost that you needed one. Well, guardrails are there, and if you run into it, your car is going to get beat up, all right? But, but, and the guardrail is going to get beat up. But the idea is that you would have a chance uh, for a life-saving experience, that you would yourself not be uh, killed by it. And so he was saying that you need uh, guardrails for your relationships, for harmful things in your life, for your family. You need a guardrail, and so you won't go off the cliff. Now, the cliff could mean alcoholism. It could be abuse. It could be just meanness. It could be a broken relationship. It could be losing things as we, as we look at this passage and is the case there. It could be a lot of things. So you need a guardrail in your life to correct you, and you don't want to get close to that guardrail because if you do, you're going to get beat up a little bit. And so you want to stay away. The problem is we don't have guardrails, and then we want to get it close to the shoulder as we can without running off the cliff. My guardrail... In life, is just I leave it alone. I feel like that's the wisest thing to do. And you say, well, you know, wait a minute, Pastor. You think about all those 40% or whatever that have problems, but 60% don't, and I'm one of the 60%. And I praise God that you're one of the 60 I don't want you to be hurt by this. The reason I'm, I'm preaching this in the first place. I don't want you to be hurt. But, you know, sometimes what we do, our actions could hurt other people, like our children. If you have a family of, of 10, all of them drink, then... You know, that's four out of ten, statistically speaking. But let me share this story with you. And I could, I could go on and I could share several stories. But this happened here in our church. We had a man years ago. In fact, I, I tell the story knowing that there's no way that you're going to really guess who this is. And uh, years ago, he was saved. He gave a testimony up here in, in the pulpit. And uh, he was saved and uh, out of an alcoholic background. We didn't know that. He didn't make that part of his, of his testimony. But his family, everything was, was uh, really bad, bad situation. He received Christ, uh, served here for several years, and then became a deacon in our church after about five, six years of being here, served well. And he was serving in one of our ministries, and he began to get sporadic. 
And he just kept telling our minister, he said, you know, it's just work. I'm having to work on Sundays. I'm having to work on... And he thought, you know, he doesn't have to all of a sudden work this many Sundays. And he's pulling away from me. I, I can tell we're not doing things together social anymore, socially. And so he just confronted him. He says, what's going on? Finally, he just confessed. He said, look, before I received Christ, I had difficulties with alcohol abuse. It was ruining my marriage, ruining my life, my children. And that's what brought me to Christ, really, that desperation in my heart. And for years, I was a, a total abstinence. I knew I couldn't take another drink. But, you know, I started going out, true story, with people in my small group. And it wasn't an sm official small group thing. It was just dinner. And I started going off with the same, same people, and they were drinking. And I just thought, you know, I'm saved now. I bet you God ha is, is going to save me from this, and I can be okay. And so he took that first drink. And after that, it was another and another and another. And he went down again. And he pretty much had dropped out of church. Later, he did drop out of church. His marriage did go on the rocks. I don't know where they really are today as far as their marriage. And so it can hurt other people. We have people this morning in the first hour, for example. They were here for the first time. I, I, don't, I don't even remember their names. I mean, they, they just told me real quick. And they said, that message was for us. We came to church today. And we know that we have alcohol difficulties, and our friends got us to come and join, uh, celebrate recovery this past week. That's the message we needed to hear. And so it's real. It's all around us. So what's the best thing to do? Just say, well, well, you know, I need it. I need it. Well, if you need it, then you probably are going to have a lot more problems than just simply a point of a message that you disagree with. And so I don't need it, and I just, I just put that guardrail up. Now, what is the point in this passage? Look with me in verse 5. It says, it's a traitor, an arrogant man who was never at rest. His greed is as wide as hell. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. They're mean. That's what he's saying. He's saying the Babylonians are like they're drunk all the time. They're never sober. They're greedy, but also they're just mean, mean-spirited. He said, well, God, what are you going to do about it? Well, in the next few verses is what he says in verse 6. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe to him. Woo, woe. Say that word with me. Woe. Say it again. Woe. That doesn't mean woe, okay? It means impending judgment. He says, the judgment's coming on the Babylonians. They're going to get their just due. And I'm going to share with you five woes as what we look at the next few verses on what God will do. Very quickly, it says, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Heaps up. That's like a sandstorm coming up and, and getting piles up. And he says, these pledges. What were these pledges? When, when the Babylonians would capture a city, they would say, okay, you're going to pay now. If you want to stay safe, you're going to have to pay. If not, we're going to come back and do it again. And they did this to every city. It became so much so that they couldn't even go back and collect. It became so big for them. And eventually, they, they quit fighting. They, they started into indulging in all kinds of things in life. And within two generations of being the most powerful nation in the known world at that time, they failed. The Persians came in and conquered them. Two generations. He says, they're going to reap what they sow. Verse 7, 
Will not your debtors suddenly arise, those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them, because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man, violence to the earth, to cities, and all who dwell in them. He says, look, we're going to, he says, woe for the injustice that you have. You've lived by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. He says, woe for false security. You're building yourself up, your retirement program, on somebody else's back. Look in verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set up his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. He says, you're, you're the nest when you retire, when you take it easy. That's what it's talking about. He says, nobody can touch us. We're so rich. We're so powerful. We can rest. Don't have anything to do. No problem. He's saying, false security. And how did they do it? You had devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. You wasted your life. Forfeited it. Why? Because you've broken the backs of other people. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. He says, you Babylonians, I'm going to bring you to justice because you're going to die from within. Because you've broken the backs of others. Remember, you know, we, we look at corporate crooks in America. You know, the, the biggest things that ever happened financially in America has done corporately. What about Enron? Years ago, $744 million given away to their executives in, in stocks, and they sold them right before Enron went out of business. What about the retirement programs? We probably have people right here, and I'm not going to name any businesses, and you had a, maybe a union, you had a deal, you had something in retirement. Your, your retirement, your, your company was paying in to that retirement. They fell on hard times during the recession, and they stole it from you. They just took it. So we see that going on, not only in the world, but in America as well. He says, because of this, you've wasted your life. But woe for the cruelty. Woe to him, verse 12, who builds a town with blood and founds a city on, on sin. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. He says, look, you're just cruel. You're mean. And the Babylonians will get judged. Woe for the immorality. In verse 15. Come back to verse 14 in a moment. Woe to him who makes his neighbor drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze on their nakedness. It's talking here again about the immorality of what's going on in our world, we can see that's going on very publicly with the sex offenders in, in Hollywood just these past couple of weeks. And the cup of wrath he's talking about really gives us the same picture. It's a point to the, gospel, to, the, to the cross. Because in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus cried out, Lord, could this cup be passed from me? And it was the cup of wrath. He was about to take on your sins and mine on the cross. Then we see a woe for idolatry. Look with me uh, in verse 16. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink for yourself and show your circumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. He says, you're about your own glory. That's what you're about. Now think about that for just a moment. That's kind of, you know, really talking about idolatry. And all of us are guilty of that. See, we think to ourselves, God, why don't you do something with those people? my enemies. And it's occurred to me that even though we have enemies probably in our life, people that want to do us harm, they really do want to connive something, maybe for revenge or whatever 
But you know, also, it could be without us knowing about it, we have enemies, we, we have people look at us as the enemy. People that we've done wrong somehow that we've blocked out. So you see, it comes on both ends. And the idolatry here, all of us kind of practice that because what is an idol? It's something we put on the throne of our life. We've said that before. It's something that is the ultimate of our life. Something that we place our confidence in. Something we want so bad, we're willing to sacrifice anything for it, and therefore it controls us. I know I go back a few years, but in the heyday of Madonna, she was interviewed uh, on a talk show. And she said, and pretty, pretty famous interview, I guess, um, she said that when she goes, all the antics that she did, you know, all the, the cutting, uh, cutting edge stuff, you know, whatever she did in entertainment, she said, when I go out there and I get that applause and I get that reaction from people, it just, it just feeds me. I need that. It makes me feel special for a while. But then I have to do something again to make me feel special again. Chris Everett, the uh, former champion tennis player um, in the uh, ladies' tennis world, the best in the world at her peak, was asked about winning. And she said, I have to win because winning makes me feel pretty. Well, if winning was making her feel pretty, then tennis meant more to her than anything else. What is it in, our, in your life that gives you that self-worth? And the Bible says that it's like an idolatry in our life. And, and because of that, we've all, all experienced that. Here's the problem. We think, God, if you'll just cut out the terrorists, we'll be okay. God, if you'll just cut out the crime in the streets, we'll be fine. Alexander Solzhenitsyn said this. The line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every individual. It's not just them. It's us, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I remember when Chuck Colson was alive and, and um, was speaking, and he told the story about the trial of Adolf Eichmann. Now, some of you that are not as familiar with that, he was one of the war criminals of World War II. He was one of Hitler's right-hand men. He was in charge of the, the prisons, and, uh, or at least a couple of them. And during his trial, a man that was in one of those prisons by the name of Denur was, was on the witness stand. And he took one look at Adolf Eichmann and collapsed on the witness stand. And afterwards, Mike Wallace of 60 Minutes, doing the interview with Denur, asked him, when you looked at Adolf Eichmann, did you pass out because of the fear that you felt? Were you afraid of him? And here's what he said. I was, I was actually, he said, afraid of myself. I saw I was as capable of doing this. I was just like him. Mike Wallace responded as he looked at the camera. Was Eichmann a monster, a madman, or something even more terrifying? Was he normal? How many of us could say if we were not in the Babylonian kingdom... And we were just surrounded by that thought process that they went through, their culture. Are we not slaves, in a sense, to our own culture? Aren't we a little bit more chameleon than we, we want to be? Who really stands alone? There you are in Germany. There you are in Babylon. And you're taught 
that the only thing that's worthy is to conquer other nations. And you grow up in that, and you, you were taught that in school, and you, you come out, and that's what you think. And you join the army because you're laying up yourselves treasures for yourself right here on earth at the expense of everybody else. Who would buck that? Who would go against that? So we see the intimate, here we see in, in all of the intimacy with God that we have, what we're capable of, and then we respond to that. So how can we trust God? We want the justice to come, but if it comes completely, it comes on us. I mean, evil is here because of sin, right? And we're sinners separated from God. All of sin comes short of the glory of God. Certainly, we've done wrong. So for God to destroy all evil and bring everything to justice, he would have to destroy sinners like us. So we have a dilemma. So how do we respond? Number one, defer to God's glory, verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as, he water, at the, as the waters cover the sea. As the waters cover the sea, so the glory of God is going to cover the universe. And we ought to be about that. I remember um, a Bible study experiencing God uh, done by Henry Blackaby. And, he, and one of the principles in there, he said, uh, you've got to find out what God's doing and then get involved in that. Well, what is God doing? He's bringing glory to himself. Being glory to himself, not, not glory to us, not putting us on the throne, but putting God on the throne. That's going to happen. And so for us to be satisfied with life, he must come first. One missionary was telling a story uh, to a pastor about the, when he was over in Korea and, the, and missions first started really in South Korea. And if you know anything about the people, at least back then, probably still today, the worst thing you can do in Korea is to lose face, all right, to, to embarrass your, your clan, your, um, your, your family in any way. And he said he was in this meeting and crushing through those first barriers. Now, South Korea is very, very much in revival and has been for 20, 30 years now. But crashing that wall of the gospel against all those other religions because no one wanted to embarrass their family. He said he was sitting in a room and tears were flowing, and one right after the other, they begin to share about their life, letting down that face, letting down the pride, really just by their actions denouncing their culture. And it's only then did they feel free. When they pulled away enough from their culture to follow the real truth, whether it was part of their culture or not. Defer to God's glory. What, what are we living for? What are we doing? You know, with all the things going on in our life, knowing that the only place of satisfaction is pointing to the glory of God. But then secondly, verse 20, very important. How should we respond? How can we trust? He says, well, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. And Habakkuk is saying, look, all the things going on, I don't understand them, but I know this, God's on his throne. God is sovereign. There's nothing that can happen that's going to fool God. And you say, now, wait a minute, Pastor. Now, now let me get this straight. You know, there's a perfect plan for everybody's life. And you may believe that. I, I do, but you may not believe that. But it doesn't matter about that part of it. But there's a perfect plan for everybody's life. So there's someone everybody should marry, right? Well, yeah. Well, well what if I married the wrong person? 
Some of you feel like you have. But you, you may, maybe they're the wrong person. And then I, I got the wrong kids. And somehow I got the right grandkids. I don't know how that happened. But I got the wrong kids. Boy, isn't God just, just thrown into a tizzy about this whole thing? What is he going to do? And he's up there trying to figure it out. Listen, there's nothing on this earth and this universe that could ever surprise God. Nothing. He's sovereign no matter what. You may feel like it's not fair. I may feel like it's not fair. God's on his throne. You say, what about people, you know, coming to Christ and, and, and God moving on their heart and drawing them with the Spirit and then receiving Christ? Some do, some don't. Isn't God surprised about that? No. There's nothing that can surprise God. Nothing. He's on his throne and his will will be done. Proverb, or, or rather Psalm, says this. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the, the oppressed and the stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. You believe that? God is sovereign enough. He says, I haven't forsaken you. Justice is coming. And so thirdly, and this is the tough part, imitate God's mercy and grace. In the Old Testament, <clears throat> in Psalms, boy, you read the Psalms. We, you know, we had a whole series on the Psalms uh, not too long ago. And some people were saying, man, that's what I need to do. I need to pray that my enemies will get killed. <laughs> but here's what Jesus said in uh, Matthew. And uh, I'll find it in a minute. I had it marked. In Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says this. You have heard it said before, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Wow, that's pretty tough. I remember years ago, I was doing a, a series, or rather a, a message on Wednesday night uh, with my last church. Seven things to do uh, when people offend you. Okay? And the last one was... You don't have to trust them again. Just because you forgive them doesn't mean you have to trust them. And one guy was writing down all these notes. Everybody's taking notes and sounds crowd about like this. He's taking notes and he says, oh, at last, one I can do. And I, I know he was just kind of thinking out loud. But it's hard. You say, well, Pastor, you just don't know. This person really um, affected my son and my, my daughter, and it just keeps on affecting. I mean, he just keeps coming back every day to haunt me. How can I forgive? How can I do that? You don't know about my job. You know, this happened at my job, and it just it keeps on. It's not just a one-time thing. It seems like it's every day I'm reminded. How do I really just give it up? How do I let it go? Listen to prayer of Habakkuk in verse 2. We'll go over the whole chapter next week. It says, Oh, Lord, as he begins to, to pray, I heard the report of you and your work. Oh, Lord, do I fear? In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Now, Habakkuk knew what was going to happen. As though he had the vision, he could see it. Babylon was going to come in, conquer his countrymen, and have no mercy. He says, God, I understand your judgment on Babylon. But in your wrath, would you remember mercy? What a prayer. Would you remember mercy? Can you imagine, we'll just say, 
Here's a, here's a young man that is ridiculed. That the hatred people have for him affects his family. He's ignored by some, scoffed at, mocked, ridiculed. And not only does he forgive, but he goes and pays for all their wrongdoing. That's what Jesus did for us. It was at the cross that judgment and justice, I should say, had been brought. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. Philip Yancey says, The cross that held Jesus' body, naked with scars, exposed by all the violence and injustice in the world, this cross revealed a world of gross unfairness and a God of sacrificial love. That's what the cross is about. It's the, it's the meeting together, the butting of heads of the injustice in the world and the mercy and grace of God with the mercy and grace overcoming all the injustice. So what do we do? We imitate that. We forgive. We burn our time machines. And I've had people to come to me and say, you know, you know what the Bible says 70 times 7. Jesus said, forgive people 70 times 7. What that means is just continually. I've had people to come to me and say, Pastor, would you forgive me? And I'm thinking to myself, I've already forgiven you, but I forgive you again. And by the way, next month, I may have to forgive you again. What do I mean by that? You forgive, and then you're okay. And then Satan brings it back to your memory, you have to forgive again. But there's a time span there. And the more you forgive, the more times you forgive the longer the time span becomes until finally, when you think about that person, you don't think about their offense anymore. Dear friends, how can we lead your enemies to Christ if we don't love them? How can we lead the terrorists and the Muslim nation even, a broader term, to Christ if we don't love them? How can we lead those around the world that hate America if we don't love them? And how can you reach that person in your office or that neighbor that you've been fighting with maybe if you don't love them? And maybe we're the only hope they have in their life. And that brings us all back to saying, I defer my own glory to the glory of God. With heads bowed and eyes closed, perhaps this morning, You've never received Christ into your heart. Well, know this. Wow. In our hearts, there's a fine line between that justice and injustice. The divine line of good and evil cuts through the heart of every individual. And we need forgiveness. We need rescuing. And the only way to bring justice to our heart is through the cross of Jesus Christ. So I invite you right now to pray this prayer with me. If you want Jesus in your heart, pray this prayer with me as I pray aloud. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for bringing justice to heaven by dying on the cross for me. I ask you to forgive me of all my sins, and I invite you into my life. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I call on you now. I ask you to save me, cleanse me, from all my sin. Bring justice to my heart. And I'll pray it in Jesus' name.
Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.